This podcast is sponsored by the EV Clinic. Preparation for life. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugan and Afif El-Kafash. Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories, and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to. So grab your coffee, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the Baby Tribe. What cozy spot is a parent going to find? Just put on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related. Let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's podcast. Afif, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we are going to talk about gestational diabetes and the effects that it could possibly have on the newborn. And we also have an interview with Professor Fergal Malone, who was the ex-master of the Rotunda Hospital. And I had the interview with him. We had to pre-record it and we chatted all things delivery, both in the hospital and at home. Wow, I'm looking forward to this one. Now, just to say from the offset, I wasn't involved in this conversation, but when it comes to home births and hospital births, it's kind of outside my scope. So I'll let Afif uh, take over on this one. Yeah, because I know it can sometimes be an emotive issue and an issue that can generate some controversy. But um, I am always a firm believer of providing evidence-based information so that people can make an informed decision with whatever choice they make. Great. So what are we going to talk? Let's get into the nitty gritty of our chats today. So today we are diving into a crucial topic, which is the impact of gestational diabetes during the pregnancy on the newborns. And why am I bringing this up? Because... um, According to the latest figures, up to 20% of mums walking through the doors of the maternity hospitals may have some form of gestational diabetes. So it's an important topic to talk about because I think it's affecting an increasing number of mums. What is your experience in the community with that, Katie? Yeah, I deal with, I suppose, even with regards to lactation support, um, I would have a large volume of moms all considering to breastfeed now because of the benefits um, because they've been diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And even on a personal note, I was diagnosed on my fourth, even though I was really healthy and everything else, but I suppose I was 38. So I was a geriatric mother, as they call them. You're still a spring chicken. <laughs> Thank you, Afif. <laughs> Thank you for that. So I'm actually really interested. It's something that I was really invested in and I did take it as a hard blow. I'm not going to lie. When I was diagnosed, I was like, even though I kind of questioned and my actual tests came back negative, I was, I took it as a real blow and I did, I was concerned. So this is a really good one for anyone that's listening in that has it. Um, Afif is going to break it down now. Yeah. So what is at stake? Well, we know that babies born to mums with diabetes can face a range of risks and They can be um, anything from being born too early, being larger than average, or even having um, some some form of heart or lung issues. The risks are actually especially high for babies whose mums have had pregestational diabetes or are dependent on insulin. So the level of control of the mother's blood sugars during the pregnancy, I think, play an important role in the development of those complications after delivery. Absolutely. Yeah, the good news is, and as Katie has alluded to, while these risks may sound scary, the good news is that kind of proper management of diabetes before and during pregnancy can significantly reduce these risks. So it's crucial to work closely with your healthcare provider and healthcare team for the best outcomes for you and your baby. Totally agree. 
What are the complications that we are talking about? Well, there is a slightly increased risk of being born too early with diabetes because it can trigger premature labor. There's also a risk of what we call as macrosomia. So that's the risk of the baby being larger than average. That can sometimes lead to issues around birth, but generally they can also be managed well. One thing that us neonatologists always keep a close eye on is the potential for the development of breathing issues shortly after birth. Sometimes babies born to mothers with GDM can have breathing difficulties and that can sometimes be due to slightly immature lungs that can develop as part of the uh, issues. Polycythemia can be an issue. So what does polycythemia mean? Their red cells or their blood count or their hemoglobin can be higher than normal. And sometimes you see these babies that are born that are quite red looking um, after delivery. Um, and that can be due to polycythemia. Sometimes that can promote babies being a little bit jittery. They may not feed very well. So it's something we keep an eye on as well. So these are the general issues that we watch out for. But the biggest thing that we look out for is what? Low blood sugars. Yes, hypoglycemia in the baby. So before we go into how we manage hypoglycemia in the baby, I actually want to go through the physiology or why do babies develop low blood sugars when their mums actually have an issue with high blood sugars during the pregnancy? And I think it's an interesting thing. Well, when a mother has gestational diabetes, her blood sugar levels or blood glucose levels can sometimes be elevated. And that's because the mom is not producing enough insulin to promote absorption of sugar into the cells. So what insulin does is that it actually promotes um, the cells to absorb sugar, keeping your blood sugars um, level. So when the mother's blood sugars go up, the baby's or the fetus's blood sugars also go up. But unlike the mother, the baby's pancreas is actually working well. So what happens is that the baby produces additional insulin to try and normalize their own blood sugar during the pregnancy. But what happens is once the baby is born and the excess source of sugar goes away, the pancreas can sometimes take a few days to reset back to the normal insulin production. So all of a sudden you have a baby that is producing slightly too much Much. insulin, but is not getting the additional glucose. So instead of having a normal blood sugar as they did during fetal life, they will have a low blood sugar. And that's why babies born to mothers with GDM are at risk of having hypoglycemia. Now, it doesn't always happen, but that is the physiological explanation for it. And they're always monitored. And they're always monitored. But I think it's a really important to, feed, to differentiate between the normal healthy infant, um, which it can be quite normal for them to drop their blood sugars if it was monitored, which it's not. But tell us the difference. Thank you for bringing that up, because I think that's an important distinction to make. We have said previously on our various episodes, and we've always tried to drive that point home, is that healthy babies with no risk factors do not need a huge amount of milk over the first 24 to 48 hours. In fact, babies in the first 24 hours probably don't take more than maybe 50 milliliters of colostrum if they're breastfeeding. Yep. And that goes up to maybe 100 and 150 mils the following day. So they don't take a huge volume. But why don't they have any consequences with that? Well, the interesting thing is, is because babies are actually designed to withstand low feeding volumes over the first 24 hours. The reason for that is their brain actually is capable of using ketones as an alternative source of energy. So 
ketones are actually an efficient fuel for the brain and can provide up to 70% of its energy needed when glucose is scarce. So how do we generate ketones? The body can generate ketones by mobilizing ketones from stored fat in our body. So what happens during the transitional period is that the babies are very good at utilizing ketones effectively as part of their adaptation to extrauterine life. And it may take some hours to switch from using ketones as the predominant source of energy for the brain to using glucose as the predominant energy of the brain. So you hear of ketones associated with fasting, don't you, Katie? Yes. And you know that if we actually fast for a long period of time, we have a high rate rise on our ketones. We have level. a high rise of ketones and our brain has to readapt to using ketones as a source of energy as opposed to glucose. So I'm Muslim and I fast during Ramadan. And I know for the first few days of fasting. He's very antsy. <laughs> very antsy, very fussy. You've seen fasting a fee for the first few days. But then I remember meeting you a week later and then you were like, God, you're Are awful. you still fasting? Because you was much nicer. You're awful bright for, for, for a person that's been fasting all day. And yeah. remember we actually. Actually, we did talk about that. Now yeah. that you say it. We did talk about that. And so the reason, you had adjusted. The reason for that is the brain then can readjust to using ketones wow. as a source of energy. And then the kind of brain fog improves. Um, it's pretty amazing, yeah. actually, when you put it in that context. Yes, exactly. Going back to newborns, they use ketones to fuel their brain for the first 24, 48 hours. But there are certain conditions that must be met in order for that to work. You must have enough fat stores. Yep. So a small for gestational for age baby or a premature baby will not have enough fat stores to generate enough ketones to fuel the brain. So that's why we're always a bit more careful about monitoring small babies and monitoring premature babies for their blood sugars. Secondly is what does insulin do? Insulin actually switches ketone production off. So if you have a lot of insulin swishing around in your body, then you cannot produce ketones to fuel your brain. So that's why we monitor blood sugars in babies born to moms with gestational diabetes because they are unable to use ketones as efficiently to fuel their brain. And hypoglycemia or low blood sugar in this cohort is something that we need to address because it's their only source of fueling the brain. So that's why babies with that risk factor of being born to a mother with gestational diabetes, we monitor their blood sugars for the first 24 hours to make sure that they are at acceptable levels. And that's why I suppose even by you saying that, it's really important that the mom tries to stabilize her blood sugars as much as possible in those kind of just before delivery in those later weeks so that the, I suppose, the level of insulin within her system is, you know, as stable as yeah. it can be. And there's often um, this notion that if you have gestational diabetes, then you have to use formula following delivery. And we know that that is not true, Katie. We do indeed. We can always look at harvesting our colostrum in advance and immediately after if baby isn't matching, starts to hand expressing your colostrum. But the harvesting colostrum is really kind of, I suppose, encouraged, I think, in most maternity hospitals now um, in preventing having a little bit of a stash of colostrum in advance of baby being born means that we can give that back on in addition to breastfeeds um, yes. to prevent those uh blood sugar drops. Yeah. And I think this is very important to emphasize that, um, you know, having gestational diabetes does not automatically mean no. that your baby needs formula. So harvesting colostrum yeah. can help. Getting early lactation support is important if you want to breastfeed and continue breastfeeding. Yeah. We have actually looked into this and unfortunately having gestational diabetes is a risk factor for early introduction of formula. Yeah. 
And that sometimes is because the blood sugar does drop despite our best efforts. But I think we can still do better in the hospital. I do. I think we could even just even our use of language because we can frighten the life out of parents thinking, oh my God, the blood sugar has dropped. We must. And then that leads to them continuously jumping into the top up trap and things yes. like that. So I think we just need to look at better support. And that comes from investment and fairness from the government for yes. our healthcare staff. Yeah, but also being empowered to know that you can harvest yeah. colostrum doing an antenatal class. I think beforehand. an antenatal educational class is really, really important. So understanding how to get off to the best possible start for yourself. Yes, so that you can have actually a successful breastfeeding experience, um, you know, knowing all of these things in, yeah. in advance. The other important thing to emphasize as well is the fact that this is a temporary thing and the insulin levels do reset usually within 24, 48 hours. So the risk of ongoing low blood sugars is not there. I often find parents asking me, is this going to be an ongoing issue with my baby? It's not. Is this going to make my baby diabetic down the line? No. So these are the important things to recognize beforehand. Great. Is there anything else? No, I think you have covered it in full, Afif. Great. Well done, you. Amazing. So on to our guest. Fergal Malone is a consultant obstetrician and a specialist in maternal fetal medicine at the Rotunda Hospital Dublin, where he was the chief executive officer until recently. He was also the professor and chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland School of Medicine. After graduation from UCD Medical School, he completed training in obstetrics and gynecology, followed by specialist training in maternal fetal medicine at Tufts University New England Medical Center in Boston. He was a consultant obstetrician there for several years before moving to Columbia University in New York, where he worked for seven years before returning to Ireland. His research interests focus on high-risk pregnancy, prenatal diagnosis, obstetric ultrasound and fetal treatment. He performed the first fetal surgery in Ireland, including laser surgery in the uterus for twin-to-twin transition syndrome and fetal diaphragmatic hernia. Wow. Yes. That's actually amazing. It is. Great. So on with the interview. This episode of the Baby Tribe podcast is sponsored by the Evie Clinic. Evie offers personalized multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment ranging from consultants, high-end scanning and prenatal screening to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. The Evie's team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynecology and pediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact Evie today on 01293-3984 or visit the website at evie.ie for more information. Fergal, thank you so much for joining us on the Baby Tribe podcast. We are delighted to have you on as a guest and I'm sure we're going to have a riveting conversation about all things to do with obstetrics. But first of all, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, my name is Fergal. I'm an obstetrician at the Redondo Hospital in Dublin. Um, I think I have the ideal job because... Not only do I look after pregnant women, deliver babies for a living, but I also do a lot of academic work, teaching, research for the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. So one of my other jobs is I'm the chairman of obstetrics and gynecology for RCSI. And um, RCSI is one of the biggest um, international medical schools in the world with campuses, not just in Dublin, but in Bahrain and Malaysia. So we deliver teaching, education, research simultaneously across three continents. So that's a huge part of my day-to-day work as well. Not just the teaching of students, but um, moving forward research um, in all things to do with obstetrics and as it encompasses also or touches on neonatology. In addition to that, uh, I do a lot of management or I used to do a lot of management up until 
Christmas, I was the CEO of the Rotunda Hospital for the last seven years, or as is known in Ireland, the master of the hospital. So a significant amount of my working day was involved with finance, contract negotiations, personnel, human resources. Are the lights still working? Is the heating working in the hospital? Um, new developments for the hospital. So um, thankfully, uh, I finished my seven-year term on that recently. And uh, I am now have dropped that one of my jobs. So now I'm just an obstetrician and a teacher academic. So for the moment. Do you feel relieved now that you've finished your CEO mastership? I'm relieved and I'm disappointed. I'm relieved because it was a huge workload. You're on 24-7 for seven years. We had a fire in the NICU one Easter. We had um, a cyber attack, COVID. You never knew what was around the next corner, so you always had to be on. So I'm relieved that I don't have that. But I'm disappointed in that, I have to say in retrospect, it was the most professionally rewarding job I have ever done. Um, it was hugely satisfying. The Rotunda's team is a team of just phenomenal people from the cleaners, the security guards, the midwives, the nurses, the doctors, the, you know, every aspect of the Rotunda staff working together. It was an absolute pleasure to um, work with such a team for seven years to build the hospital to now being by far the busiest maternity hospital in Ireland, one of the busiest, if not the busiest in Europe. So that was hugely professionally satisfying and rewarding. So there is a certain amount of disappointment to not being responsible for that anymore. But seven years is seven years. And as someone said to me, you get less for manslaughter. So yeah. uh, I'm actually happy that that chapter of my life is over. And I've been able to hand over the reins to Sean Daly, who is um, the 40th master in the history of the Rotunda. And I know he's doing a great job in taking the Rotunda to the next level. And when you say you were on, you actually were on for seven years nonstop. I don't think you've actually yeah. turned your phone off. During no, that seven you can't. Year period. And even yeah. when you're abroad, yes. um, there's constant emails, constant phone calls. There's always some crisis or if not even a crisis, just things that need to be managed that aren't compatible with Monday to Friday, nine to five, uh, what you might call office hours. Yeah. So on means on. And I think um, a lot of people don't actually realise mm. that, that, and I remember having to phone you and, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd know the international ring yeah, and you'd answer, yeah. you'd be somewhere and you'd, sure. you know, you'd deal and you'd manage it. So you actually are on nonstop for the seven year yeah. period. So fair play. It's not an easy job to do. Well, you can't not answer. And if you're yeah. committed to an institution, if you're committed to an organisation, if you're committed to other people, you know, they don't want to know that, oh, it's 10 past five or you're where yeah. they just want an answer. But the other thing is also surrounding yourself with good colleagues because so much you can delegate very well. People might just want to steer in a certain direction or an okay to, we're going in this direction, is that all right? And, you know, just as long as it's fine, just let people get on with it. And they just want to hear that from you, that it's okay to get on with it. Yeah. I want to, before we talk about obstetrics, talk about Fergal the dad. Mm. Um, you have children that are now... Mm. Pretty much grown-ups, aren't they, yeah. at this stage? So I have four daughters. Um, I'm surrounded by women at work. I'm surrounded by women at home. All of my patients, most of my patients are women. I'm, you know, that's my life. Uh, and But I couldn't be happier. I mean, my, my four girls um, are so different individually from each other. Their personalities are so different. Um, they are 
fabulously um, make me happy in so many ways and similarly infuriating uh, as teenagers and ex-teenagers are. So I have four girls aged now from 19 to 27. Wow. And um, two of them have already followed in the the medical direction there. One is a senior house officer actually in obstetrics in the Rotunda, my oldest. And my second oldest is an intern in the matter doing medical oncology at the moment. And then my third daughter is, has just finished children's and general nursing, a graduate as a nurse. She's a staff nurse in Crumlin in the ED and has just left this week to take up her new career in Great Ormond Street in London. So she just literally emigrated last week and she's going to be an operating theatre nurse in Great Ormond Street. And I can only imagine the sorts of things she will see in Great Ormond Street. And then my youngest, my baby, who's not a baby, who's 19, is in second year in medical school in RCSI. Oh, wow. So they all so stayed I've, pretty close. They all close. stayed in the healthcare field. Um, it's my, interesting because yeah. I had a conversation with um, Jonathan Horan, professor of paediatrics, and he was saying how he and myself have scared our children away from medicine. You seem to have, you know, bucked the trend and enticed them all into, into the medical field. You know, it's an interesting question, Afif, because I honestly can say that I haven't deliberately enticed nor scared any of them away. It's inevitable that the dinner table conversation can be dominated by medical things. So it's what they hear. It's what they hear me on the phone about. It's what they see me doing. So it's not a surprise that they, they're comfortable with medical healthcare things. But they've also seen the toll on the hours at night, they're getting up at two in the morning, 3 a.m. to go in and deliver a baby or deal with some crisis or other. So they've seen the warts in all part of medicine. Medicine, as we know, is not all rosy. You know, we, we're there at the most privileged times, the happiest times of people's lives, but we're also there at the most heartbreaking, devastating times. Uh, and that takes a toll. And my kids would have seen that. But I haven't actively encouraged nor discouraged. So it's interesting that three have decided to go down the medical route, one, the nursing route. My wife is a, a, was a nurse at St. Vincent's Hospital and when we were in the United States in the surgical ICU for many years. So um, the my third daughter certainly has the caring gene strongly from my wife. So there's definitely, uh, she inherited that trait. But it's interesting because people often ask me, did you actively encourage or did you discourage? And I, I, and I can honestly say I was neutral. Neutral, yeah. That, you know, I, I would be very happy if any of my kids decided to be lawyers, artists, professional sports person, whatever, um, as long as they seemed happy. And they all certainly seem happy so far. Amazing. And I think encouraging your kids to do something is a sure way of pushing them away from it. Well, I think you're right there. And I was being careful on that, not to do that. I have to say, I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm, I'm flattered, satisfied, grateful that some of them have chosen a career similar to mine. I yeah. mean, that's... And it's, it's amazing. Know. I mean, you've operated with your eldest, isn't that right? Yeah. And I mean, how, how does that feel? It must feel special because not, not a lot of parents could actually yeah, say that. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, not long ago, I did a cesarean section where my assistant, who was scheduled to be the senior house officer that day, was my daughter. Yeah. And she introduced herself to the patient as Dr. Kira, you know, and and it was great. It was fun. And uh, 
um, in, 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 fascinating or in, intriguing aspect. It, I have to say, though, it must be tough on her, on if one of your children is working in the same building, the same organization that your dad or your mom is, um, that's got to be tricky because yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you feel, even if people aren't watching you, you got to feel like people are watching you and people are judging you. I'm sure that's an added pressure. I'm sure it um, is, yeah. She seems from from what I hear to she that she's taken it in her stride. I mean, the listeners would know that my wife is an anesthetist and she works in the rotunda. Mm. And I think she was doing that, that list yeah. with you guys. Yeah. And yeah. she was having great, a great time um, where your daughter was actually spilling all the dirt oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. on you. So um, I, I know my wife loves having her around as well. So it's And by coincidence on another section that we did, we had a midwife who was working in theatre that day and her surname was Malone, no relation. Okay. So we actually had three Malones the one day and uh, we, we decided to christen our anaesthetist uh, Malone, an honorary Malone for the day, just so that you could make just so you can the, have uniformity. The, the whole uniformity across it. Everyone was a Malone that yeah. day, but hey. Absolutely. I want to bring you back to your training. Mm. Um, you spent some time in New York, isn't that right? And mm. your kids must have been quite young at that stage. Yeah. How did you actually navigate having your children and doing a very, very busy fellowship? Was that a tough time? It was a tough time because I suppose I'm unusual from an Irish doctor's perspective in that almost all of my training was done in the United States. I did very little postgraduate medical training in Ireland. I did it one year if it was an intern and one year as an SHO. So I did all of what the Americans call residency training in obstetrics and gynecology in Boston and then fellowship training in maternal fetal medicine in Boston uh, before being appointed a consultant there and then moved down as a consultant to New York for another six years. So in total, I spent about 15 years in the US and all four of my kids were born in the US. And it's very different in the US in terms of training and how that melds or blends with family life. And the idea of paternity leave uh, wasn't really a thing um, in the United States. I think it's changing now, but I would have taken a few days off. You had some of them in in New York or in in the States. So two of my kids were born in Boston and two were born in New York. So they're all born So all four are Americans. So um, yeah, so So I have experienced the U.S. obstetrics system from both sides, both as a a deliverer of uh, obstetrics, literally, um, and also as a a consumer when my wife and I had our our four pregnancies and deliveries in in Boston and New York. Did you feel any feelings of guilt when you were probably doing, I mean, residencies and fellowships there are quite brutal because I did a fellowship in, in, in Toronto and you are worked pretty, pretty hard. There's always feelings of guilt. Absolutely. Um, I remember at the time we had Kira, my oldest, we were in Boston at the time. And it was actually a very delicate time for people who were both partners were working full time because there was an infamous case happened in Boston at the time where a young English nanny was over in Boston at the time and a baby in her charge was found dead. And it was decided or it was concluded that it was a case of shaken baby syndrome. And she was the nanny for two doctors, actually, both of whom were working professionally at the time. And it was a huge media profile, that case. 
from the devastation it wrought on everyone. The poor parents who lost their baby, the young nanny who clearly was out of her depth in a foreign country on her own and, you know, having to deal with the challenges of a newborn baby all alone. Uh, There were no winners here. And it caused a lot of introspection amongst young couples who had who were having children at the time where both partners were were working full time who's looking after the children who's going to stay home to look after the children who's going to stop working where do you find a nanny can you trust a nanny and these are the real life practical challenges that almost everyone has to deal with when um you have a baby and because of that case and because of how fraught that case was and how everyone was talking about it, we actually made a value judgment at the time when we had Kira that my wife decided, you know what, I'm actually going to stay at home and I'm going to step out of ICU nursing for a while until um, uh, we figure things out. And then a year out became two years out, became three years out, and then she actually didn't go back to work. So I was actually very, very lucky in that my wife was willing and able to make that personal choice to stay at home and be a full-time mom to our first and then our second child. And it's um, a choice that she made, basically. Yeah, yeah. it was a, it was a choice that she made, uh, even though she was a phenomenally um, successful ICU uh, ICU nurse. And I can tell you, ICU nursing as a specialty is very hard to find good ICU nurses and the hospital were like begging her to come back. But she just made that value choice that, listen, I just am nervous about how to judge um, a nanny, especially in a foreign country where I don't have family around to back up. So she just made that choice. We made that choice together and it worked out. Now, so many other families don't have the luxury of that, of being able to make that decision. They're in a situation financially where both partners have to work and have to work full time and they can barely take the luxury of six months out for maternity leave, let alone nine or 12 months. Um, So did I have guilt feelings going to work for long hours? Absolutely I did. But at the same time, we as a couple made that value choice that Marie was going to stay home and uh, look after Kira and then our other children. There's always debate in the media as to whether dads feel guilty for yeah. for making those career choices yeah. and they never get asked that question. So yeah. it's great that you've answered it in such a nice and honest yeah. way. So yeah. um, I want to pivot slightly away back to your um, career and we'll talk about current obstetrics now in a minute. But I wanted to ask, who were your mentors throughout your training? It is so important for any young person building their career, no matter what walk of life you're in, to identify a mentor early. Uh, if, you, if you're lucky enough to find a good mentor, it can make a huge difference in your career progression. I was lucky enough to have a fabulous mentor from the time I arrived in the US called Mary Dalton, who is a graduate from Galway, an obstetrician who um, left Galway um, years ago and moved to Canada um, to do an anesthesiology residency. But then she changed her mind and became an obstetrician. 
and has risen up the ranks to be probably one of the most influential and most uh, well-known obstetricians in all of the United States and internationally, an ex-president of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, chair of OBGYN at Columbia University in New York, a major Ivy League medical school. Um, Mary kind of adopted me as a young resident when I was in Boston and she was a division director of maternal fetal medicine, gave me my start, encouraged me into the specialty of high-risk obstetrics and then pointed out some of the um, ways that you can blend a clinical medical career with an academic career and how you can see challenging questions in your day-to-day practice and ask, why are we doing things this way? Should we continue to do these things this way? How can I study that? Should we study that? Um, And one of the things she taught me as a mentor was how you can do much more impactful research if you can bring groups of people together. So no hospital on its own generally will ever have enough patients with a particular disease, a particular condition to answer the question you want. But if you can bring together groups of hospitals, groups of collaborators, you can get a lot more done. How do you get collaborators to work together? What she taught me is to make sure that everybody sees there's something in it for them. If people feel in a collaboration, whether it's an academic collaboration, a work collaboration, a research collaboration, that you are dominating, and it's all about your greatness or your progression. People will very quickly drop you and you won't progress. So you have to convince people that we're in this together, that there's something in it for everyone. And I was taught that very early on and I saw how she did that quite successfully. And at every international or national meeting she was at, she would always call out or give kudos to the trainees Um I would always be irritated at scientific meetings where I see these big senior academics up on the podium talking about something. They don't need that. They're already have arrived, but their trainees would give their right arm for an opportunity to be on the podium. And they probably at an did all the dog work themselves. And they did all the dog work. Yeah. So if you can encourage people and empower people to do the work and they get the credit, they get the visible credit at the big international meetings, that's how mentors work. And um, as she told me once, um, 20 years from now, you some fabulous paper you published in the New England Journal of Medicine will long since be forgotten. But the trainees that you bring up and you place in leadership positions around the world, that's where you'll be remembered for, not for some paper 20 years ago that is yeah. no one even cites anymore. So those are lessons in mentorship that I learned from Mary And I have to say, I was so lucky to have her as a mentor. And indeed, to this day, which is 30 years later, we still collaborate together. We have a joint fellowship training program in maternal fetal medicine between the Rotunda and Columbia University in New York. So every year we send the best and the brightest of our trainees. They spend a year in Dublin, a year in New York. And virtually every single consultant maternal fetal medicine specialist in Dublin in the last 10 years who has been appointed, has come off of our training program. Um, So that's a huge legacy that Mary leaves and I would like to leave behind. Um, Not just papers published or grants won, it's impact on 
the people who are coming up behind you. Yeah, and that's that's the real impact from mm-hmm. from the academic sense. Really, sure. as you said, is the legacy you leave behind is the people that you actually Absolutely. train and leave behind, yeah. and and you know speak of you and mention you down the line. You have to get to a certain point in your career to understand that because there's at a certain point at the start of your career, it's all about counting papers and yeah. what position is your name on the sequence of authorship. And people get very exercised by that. And I understand that and rightly so at that point in your career. What an amazing description of a mentor that you've had. And it's so nice that this is what the impact she's had on your career mm-hmm. and you could still see it, you know, going forward. So that's that's a really true impact of a mentor that you described there. I want to... Um, move along to clinical obstetrics, Mm. if that's okay. And there has been a lot of scrutiny in the media recently about hospital obstetrics and the rate of interventions. I mean, all hospitals are quite open about, you know, the interventions and the outcomes, and they're published for scrutiny on on a regular basis. And there has been this recent, I suppose, scrutiny of the rate of interventions, the rate of cesarean sections happening. Mm. Oftentimes when justification is given for those rates. You have voices to say that you're blaming women for, for the rates of intervention. How do, how do you navigate this? Because I know it's, it's becoming increasingly um, pervasive, I suppose. Yeah. It's a difficult area because, as we know, and a prolific researcher and investigator like yourself, Afif, knows just as much as me that you can use data to prove or support almost any argument that you want. And as Trump time, people used to talk about alternative facts. People are happy to use facts and alternative facts to bolster whatever argument or agenda they might have. So it can be very difficult, actually, to counter some of the criticisms that people would throw at you that you're being overly invasive. You're turning a natural physiological process that women have been delivering babies successfully for thousands of years without the requirement of a high-risk obstetrician, a maternal fetal medicine specialist, a hospital with all inpatient facilities. Why do you need that? But the harsh reality is that women have been dying in childbirth for thousands of years. Babies have been dying in childbirth for thousands of years. As has been said before, probably the most hazardous journey any human will ever take is their birth. And while thankfully the vast, vast majority of deliveries result in a simple, uncomplicated, normal delivery of a healthy baby, unfortunately it doesn't end up like that with many cases. And those are tragedies. And it behoves us as professionals, as healthcare professionals, to always do our best for mom and baby. And if that means that there is an increase in cesarean section rate, that there's an increase in induction of labour rate, But if it's associated with measurably better outcome from moms and babies, that is justifiable and this is defensible. I just finished, after seven years of Master of the Rotunda, I just finished putting together the data for the Rotunda's outcomes in the last seven years. And the Rotunda has been doing so-called audit before most hospitals knew how to spell the word. Audit has been going on and been published by the Rotunda since the 1800s. And we've always been most open and out there with our data. And while we have seen an increase in the cesarean section rate over my seven years as master from 36% to now 39%, and while some people might look at that headline figure of 39% with disappointment and say, oh my gosh, what a tragedy, what an indictment. 
of modern Irish obstetrics that 39% of women end up with cesarean sections. I'll point to the lowest ever adjusted perinatal mortality rate. If you make it to term, if you get to 37 weeks with no congenital malformation, your chances of having a healthy surviving baby in the rotunda is about 999 out of 1,000. The adjusted perinatal mortality rate is close to 1 per 1,000 in the rotunda. That is historically incredibly low and comparable, if not better, than most other developed countries. Certainly a lot better than the adjusted perinatal mortality rate we see in the, in the United States. Better than the United Kingdom. So we can be justifiably proud of that. Now, I'm not directly linking a particular cesarean section rate to that adjusted perinatal mortality rate. But the reality is, this is proof of the safety of Irish obstetrics. And the fact that interventions are high can be justified when you see outcomes like that. I think a key point here is that all of this data is open to study and scrutiny and interpretation by anybody embarking on a journey of, of, of having antenatal care in a hospital. You really know what you're in for, number one, and you really know what you're getting. And I sometimes question the notion that is out there that mums go into hospital not being informed, that decisions are made without having informed consent, that they aren't really fully informed about their antenatal journey. And I personally don't see it. And I don't think that that is the case. And what would you say to women of Ireland in terms of their power to make informed choices in the hospital? Well, I think it has never been easier as a patient or healthcare user to stop and ask questions. I remember as a medical student going through rounds on the wards and clinics, and it would be unusual. It would be exceptional for a patient to stop their doctor, their consultant, say, hold on a second now, can you explain that to me? What are the alternatives to that? This is standard practice nowadays. Patients stop me all the time and say, well, why are you recommending an induction? Is there a plan B or is there a plan A? What are my alternatives? And I'm not threatened by that. And I think doctors today are not threatened by that. And that's actually a healthy sign. Um, if one of my patients asked to see another doctor for a second opinion, I wouldn't be offended by that. And I think that's a healthy sign of um, a, a mature healthcare system with confident doctors that if you're practicing evidence-based medicine, you should have absolutely no problem with a patient stopping you and saying, explain that to me a little bit more. What's the data underpinning that? I read data that suggested something else. What do you think of that? Whereas in the past, you might have got the back, you might have seen doctors getting taken a hump or getting their back up and they're saying, well, I'm the doctor and you'll do what I say. That's long since gone, that paternalistic approach. And that's a healthy thing. So I think patients can be confident that they can look at data, they can ask questions, they can give their own interpretations and engage in a discussion, a meaningful discussion with their doctors. Some of the problems though with this is Interpreting data can be quite complicated. I'll give you a classic example of that. More recently, there's been growing data suggesting that routine induction of labor at 39 weeks gestation, instead of just waiting to see if labor happens itself, by randomized trial has been shown to be actually associated with a lower cesarean section rate. And when that data came out, 
a lot of people looked at it and said, well, gee, that doesn't make sense. That seems counterintuitive. I was always told that people who are induced induction leads to higher cesarean section rates. By being more intrusive and interventional, you're going to trigger uh, almost like a conveyor belt towards an inevitable cesarean section. So that surprised people when that came out. Because people, an, uh, an older approach to the data or an incorrect way to look at the data was patients would say, let me compare women at 39 weeks who are induced versus women who went into spontaneous labor and let's see how they do. And when you do that comparison, absolutely, you find a higher cesarean section rate in the group for patients who were induced compared with women who went into labor spontaneously. So people erroneously concluded, ah, you shouldn't induce people because if you induce people, I've just shown that you have a higher cesarean section rate. But of course, that was always a wrong comparison. At 39 weeks, you can't choose to be induced or choose to go into spontaneous labor. You can choose to be induced, but you can't choose to go into spontaneous labor. Yeah, that's what very you true. choose is you choose to wait. wait. So you either choose to be induced or you choose not to be induced. So the proper comparison wasn't to compare cesarean sections in the induction group versus the women who successfully went into labor. You compare the cesarean rates in the people who are induced versus people who waited. And in that group, you find that actually there is a lower cesarean section rate in the induction group. And there's actually some logic to it because obviously if you don't go into labor spontaneously yourself by 39 weeks, every week later that you wait, the baby gains about half a pound a week. So in two more weeks, the baby's going to be a whole pound larger. And for some patients, a pound larger in a baby won't make any difference. It'll still be a successful vaginal delivery. But for some women, their pelvis capacity is such that that pound could make all the difference. So there's actually quite a lot of logic when you think about it, why inducing people at 39 weeks is actually associated with a lower cesarean section rate if you do the comparison properly. So that has impacted our practice now in that it's not that we encourage everyone at 39 weeks to have an induction, but in fairness, if a patient comes to me at 39 weeks and says, I'm interested in either waiting or being induced. What are the pros and cons? I now have data that I can share with her, a proper comparison. And if she chooses to wait, that's absolutely fine. And we wait and we support her. But if she chooses that she wants to be induced, that's a perfectly legitimate choice and, and, for her and, to and, make. And that's the key point that you make. She's not pressured into induction. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's the same when you drill into the data on home births versus hospital births. Some people will take data from home births and say, ah, look, home births, uh, people who successfully deliver at home have the uh, similarly low rate of bad things happening or adverse outcomes than people who deliver in hospital. And by that comparison, they may say home births are equal to hospital births. But in actual fact, that's not really a fair comparison because the people who are eligible for home births tend to be the lowest of the low risk. If you have any high risk complications, you won't actually be eligible for home yeah. birth in the first place. So in actual fact, if you conclude that the complication rates are similar in home births versus hospital births, that's actually not a positive thing to be shouting about. Yeah. You would expect that the complication rates for home births should be considerably lower 
on yeah. every measure than hospital births because you're extracting the lowest of the low risks. One one issue I suppose I have with the home birth data when it's being presented is to me personally, I would like to know what are my chances of an adverse outcome for me as a mother and for my baby if I labor and if I begin my labor at home. What you find missing from a lot of the data is the outcome of mothers that are transferred to the yes. hospital, the outcome of yeah. babies that are transferred to the hospital. It's obvious that the home birth data of babies that end up delivering in hospital are going to be perfect because they would have been otherwise sent to the hospital. But what I find missing a lot of the time is what are my outcomes if I get transferred yeah. to the hospital after laboring at home when that was the intention? And you can't find that data easily. Yeah. And you, you hit on a very good point that all researchers know about, and you deal with it on a day-to-day basis, I do as well in academia, and that's this phrase called intent to treat, ITT. The intention to treat analysis should always be done in any trial. If you randomize patients to two different treatments, even if something happens and the patient didn't end up having the treatment, the analysis should be done based on the group they were assigned to. Otherwise, you're going to end up with bias. And home birth versus hospital birth is a classic example of that. If you only count the outcomes for the people who not only started a home birth program, but completed the home birth at home, if you just focus your outcomes on those, that's only a subgroup. That analysis should include all of the outcomes of people who started the home birth journey at home and then ended up in hospital. If there's any adverse outcomes there, that should be counted not in the hospital group, but in the home birth group. And yes. you're right, it can be very hard to extract that level and, of data. Yeah, and I'm not even talking about the mothers that are antenatally transferred before they go into labour. I mean, that's they should be counted as a hospital birth, I suppose. But I'm actually kind of re-emphasising the point is that it is hard to find the data of outcomes of mothers as a whole who have laboured at home. You often don't know the outcomes of the mothers because they're counted as part of a hospital. And, and I have to say, especially as my seven years as Master in the Rotunda, work very closely with some really, really phenomenal midwives who have embraced home births. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in my time in the Rotunda as the Master is how Rotunda midwives and Rotunda obstetricians work so collaboratively together. So for example, most normal vaginal deliveries in the rotunda, obstetricians have no need, no role to be present at all and work very confident and trusting in their midwifery colleagues to look after those patients fully, knowing, having the confidence that they will call me if there's a problem. And having midwives who are very sure of themselves and confident that they're quite happy to say, okay, things are now moving out of my area of expertise I do think it's time to call the doctor and not feel, oh God, that's a, a sign of failure as a midwife that I had to call the doctor in. And um, when you can get midwives and obstetricians working collaboratively like that, where there's mutual trust and respect, that's where you have the most successful outcomes. So, for example, I have absolutely no problem with appropriately selected patients delivering at home. And I encourage that. And if a patient of mine said that she wanted to deliver at home, provided that she meets safety criteria and she's working with midwives who follow the same concepts and the same safety protocols that we follow, I think that's great because you would have a confidence, the confidence as an obstetrician, that you'll trust that midwife to send the patient in promptly if things start to deteriorate and not be working in a 
in a confrontational scenario where the midwife feels, oh gosh, uh, I, I better just hold on another couple of hours because if I send the patient in, it's going to look like a failure on me or, or I had to abandon ship. And that's, that's wrong. So if we have mutual respect and mutual support, you can actually get a program of home births, hospital births working very well together. And I think that's an amazing point that you bring up, that questioning of the data is not a way of discouraging home birth or making it a confrontation. It is actually providing the data transparently so that people can make informed choices. Absolutely. My, my issue is there's sometimes a lack of adequate information to enable mothers to make that infor yeah. informed choice. And I wanted to touch on this point, but you brought it up yourself, is the collaboration between obstetricians and midwives is key. Yeah. And there's a very good working relationship mm -hmm. by and large between mm -hmm. obstetricians and midwives in the rotunda, which is fantastic. And they play an amazing role in minding the babies as well postnatally. Yeah, and us sure. as neonatologists have, I think, a very good working relationship yeah. with yeah. the midwifery um, care team, the early discharges and things like that. We work collaboratively and we work together. So I think that's something that needs to be emphasized that it you know, we work together. Like you said, I mean, home birth should be a viable option for mothers that choose to do it. However, it needs to be an informed choice. One of the disappointments I witnessed when I worked in the United States, especially in Boston, was midwives and obstetricians were generally poles apart and that the hospitals had obstetric nurses working in them to help the doctors, the obstetricians, they didn't generally, mostly didn't have midwives because for whatever reason, culturally, things had deteriorated to a level that in general, they just couldn't seem to work together. And I always saw that as an awful shame. And it was such a pleasure when I came back to the Rotunda in 2005 from the US to see midwives and obstetricians working in a mutually trusting way together. And it's not that the obstetricians were insisting that I'm the boss. As I say, many, majority of normal vaginal deliveries, there's no reason for an obstetrician to set foot in the room at all. Midwives are more than capable and delighted to do the work. But they were also so happy to have the obstetricians there to help out when there's a problem. So yeah, that, that mutually trusting relationship is key. And I fear when I see some of the media commentary on midwives versus obstetricians in the UK, that in the UK, I don't think it's nearly as good a collaborative relationship as we have here in Ireland. But you actually see a direct correlation with neonatal outcomes um, between whether there's a collegial relationship mm -hmm. or not. I mean, sure. the outcomes in the States for home births. Yeah. I think the mortality there is four times that sure. of hospital births and the perinatal mortality rate in UK as a whole is not as good as that in yeah. Ireland. So I think yeah. that's partly because of the good relationship sure. obstetricians and actually midwives yeah. have. And I think that needs to be stated and emphasised. And the last thing we would ever want to achieve in Irish maternity services is for obstetricians and midwives to be separated or to have barriers put up there. Um, and that's why, you know, I think... At the Rotunda, we do, and again, colleagues in National Maternity Hospital as well, do this very, very well with their domiciliary service and their, their home birth support service. There is, a again, a great track record of collaboration between midwives and obstetricians at the Dublin Maternity Hospitals. And I really want to make sure we can keep that going as long as possible. That's great. Um, I think this is a great way to end the conversation. But before we finish, are there any kind of final words you'd like to say to the listeners in the in the podcast? 
having a career in obstetrics in Ireland and the United States has been such an eye opener for me, but such a privileged position that so many families have, you know, allowed you to be such a key part of such a um, an important part of their life. It's it's it really is the most amazing profession to be in. Second to neonatology, of course. Second to neonatology, obviously. <laughs> but um, but I would just encourage any listeners who are thinking of a career in midwifery, in medicine and obstetrics, to absolutely not be put off by the intensity, the reality that you're only ever moments away from potential disaster and the stress that comes with that. There is no doubt in my mind that all of that, all of that negativity is dwarfed by the elation and positivity that surrounds this specialty. And while I've been delivering babies for many years now, it never gets old. And as I said to people before, I never have to set an alarm clock in the morning. I bounce into bed because I love going to work. I love what I do. Your car is always the first one there <laughs> at the hospital in the morning, yeah? Uh, unless I'm on the bike. And uh, But it's it's a great career, a career in maternity services. So I would just encourage people, don't be put off by challenge. Don't be put off by stress. Anything worth doing is likely going to be hard to do. But it's, it's, I think it would be difficult to find as rewarding a career as participating in maternity services and the maternity journey for so many families. Great. Well, Fergal, thank you so much for taking the time to come on this um, episode. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you on your parenting journey. Remember, you're doing an amazing job. Thanks for being part of the Baby Tribe community. See you next week.